0: This is the Building Resilience Podcast, episode 111, Trauma Talk, Demystifying Trauma Terminology. Welcome to the Building Resilience Podcast, where you will learn all about building resilience in yourself and helping others build it too. Drawing from the principles of positive psychology, neuroscience, and coaching, I will help you face all the challenges and adversities that life throws at you and help you do more than just survive. I will help you thrive. I am your host, Leah Davidson, and I am a certified life coach and speech-language pathologist. I will help you manage your mind, your emotions, deal with your stress and your overwhelm, and lead a more purposeful and joyful life. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. I hope you are having an awesome day and an awesome week. I am once again going to be diving into... Some of the newer topics that we're talking about this year. A couple weeks ago, we talked about compassion fatigue. And just as a recap, if you haven't listened to that episode, it was a term that was coined by Professor Charles Figley. And he stated that compassion fatigue is really defined as a combined effect of secondary traumatic stress and burnout. So Today and in the next couple episodes, we're going to dive a bit deeper to learn a little bit more about what is meant by secondary traumatic stress, and we are also going to talk more about burnout. And there is a ton of information, so buckle up. I hope I don't overwhelm you. Just take it in little chunks. A lot of the information that I am going to be sharing with you today is taken from the works of my teacher and mentor, Dr. Eric Gentry. I've talked about before, such an amazing man and making such great contributions or has been making awesome contributions the past 40 years in the field of trauma and compassion fatigue and burnout. Um, So I want to make sure that I give him credit because I have been training with him and he is just an incredible person. So burnout is something that, as I said, we will talk about and it's something that kind of is used as an umbrella term. There are many professions who work in very high demand jobs that do experience burnout and who would really benefit from all the strategies and techniques that I'm teaching in my coaching practice for sure. So reach out if that's you. But there's a lot of people who work in what I've called the helping professions or who are caregivers. So people who work with other people who are suffering or who are sick or injured, they are really exposed to a different sort of stressor. And we've talked about compassion fatigue. And the other stressor that is often referred to is called secondary trauma or secondary traumatic stress. So I want to devote an entire episode on secondary traumatic stress since this is part of such an important equation. But before we go deeper into that, I thought I would take today's episode to really define some terms for you that I think will be really helpful to understand. It will help you understand some of the terminology that is used when we talk about trauma. Now, a lot of these terms were very new to me when I first started learning several years ago, and that's why I want to share them with you, because a lot of them, maybe you've heard of them, you're not quite sure what they mean, but I think it's always important for us to be building awareness and increasing our knowledge base. All right. So the first thing I want to talk about is over the past couple of years, there's been a big emphasis on people becoming trauma-informed. So let's start with that. Like, what does that even mean, being trauma-informed? Well, basically, it means having an understanding of the impact that trauma has on people and communities, individuals and groups, and then using that understanding to guide the actions and decisions in all the various settings like in the healthcare, in education, in social services. So it really involves being able to recognize the signs of trauma, respond to them in a way that is safe and supportive for individuals, and then also taking steps to prevent re-traumatization. And it also means that we want to be creating an organizational culture that is sensitive to the needs of trauma survivors and that the organization, the culture of the organization actually promotes healing and resilience. So being trauma-informed, it involves understanding and addressing the impact of structural and systemic trauma on individuals, their families, and their communities. So there really is a need, I think, for everybody to become trauma-informed. And a good place to start is just learning and hearing about the terms that are associated with trauma. So let's keep going. Now, the next thing I want you to be aware of is something called an ACE score. ACE like the cards, ACE, A-C-E. What is this? So ACE actually stands for Adverse Childhood Experience. And there was a research study that was conducted by a US organization called the Kaiser Permanent and also the CDC. And it was originally published in the American Journal of Preventative Medicine. Basically, participants were recruited to the study for a couple of years between 95 and 97. And they have since been followed. They've been looking at their long-term health outcomes. Now the crux of the study was they wanted to determine whether adverse experiences prior to one's 18th birthday could be related to negative health outcomes in adulthood. So I want you to think about that. Does what happened to you in your childhood impact your health as an adult? Well, they studied like over 17,000 adults. And they asked, I think there's like 17 or 18 questions across multiple categories. There's about seven categories that divide them into things like abuse. So psychological, physical, sexual abuse, household dysfunction. This is where People Were they living in households where there was substance abuse or mental illness or if a parent was treated violently or if there was a divorce or if there was criminal behavior or incarceration in the home? So they looked at these questions. And the results of the original ACE study was actually pretty shocking. More than half of the participants, they reported experiencing at least one of these adverse events that was across these seven domains of abuse and household dysfunction. And the most commonly endorsed ones were substance abuse, followed by sexual abuse, followed by mental illness in the household. And I think that's interesting, and I wonder, now this is just me talking on the side because divorce is considered an adverse childhood experience. And I wonder now, I know that they're doing a lot of different updated studies of different ACEs ACE studies. I wonder if divorce now would be seen as something more common, and we would see it as being a higher level of incidence with people who are asked these questions. So they found that as the exposure to ACEs increased, the likelihood for unfavorable outcomes such as diseases and incidents and poor health and lack of healthcare utilization and mortality increased. So compared to participants without exposure to ACEs, it was pretty alarming for them to see that respondents who had four or more categories of ACE exposure had an odds ratio of 12.2 for a history of suicide attempts. So these individuals with more categories of ACE exposure were much more likely to experience suicide attempts. And they also saw a link with the prevalence and risk of alcoholism, the loose use of illicit drugs. As the number of ACEs increased, when they had four or more categories, there was clear relationship between childhood ACEs and disease conditions, like things like chronic bronchitis or emphysema or stroke or heart disease or hepatitis or jaundice. These things all increased with the number of ACEs. Now, you may be thinking, well, probably the people that were studied were in very low socioeconomic status or maybe people who had a very tough life or a hard, challenging life. But actually, the participants in the sample were predominantly white, educated, college educated, with access to good health care. So what they ended up finding is that ACEs are pretty common and ACEs are interrelated, and there is a clear relationship between ACEs and negative health outcomes in adulthood. And because these results had such strong implications for medical and public health research, the CDC does continue to follow the original participants so that they can continue to track these risk factors and health outcomes and mortality. And because these things were so common, there was a big push that we need to have more trauma-informed approaches to healthcare, And then, of course, spreading more into other organizations, educational institutions, social communities, policies, and so forth. So there's actually an ACE questionnaire that you can take. You can just Google it and you can see what your ACE score is. And we really are starting to understand how somebody's childhood experiences can be contributing to their current health and the current health and social problems that we are seeing at large. Now, the ACE questionnaire, it doesn't cover everything. So it's important to note that it's just a good indicator that allows us to see that many of us carry childhood experiences that are shaping and contributing to our lives now as adults. And also just because you don't have an ACE score does not mean that you didn't experience painful experiences that can be impacting you because of course they didn't cover everything. And just because you have a high ACE score does not mean that you are doomed as well. This is just one method for us to be using to build more awareness around trauma and to see how trauma does impact people, what we can do, how we can do to improve in society, how we can do to improve in helping parents to be taking better care of our children. So I just wanted to introduce this concept, this study to you since it's been so important in the push for us to all become more trauma-informed. All right, so another concept I'm going to introduce you to is called trauma genesis. And that basically is a concept that any learning experience in a person's life that is painful to them will leave an impression and teach them to perceive future situations that had any similarities to that first experience as a present-day threat. So basically, the formula is painful past life experience plus our learning and memory equals a perceived threat in a similar future situation. So why am I even telling you about trauma genesis? Well, because our painful past learning doesn't just include stressful events that occurs to us personally, but we can simply be a witness to something painful or traumatic, or even spending time in an environment where trauma has occurred, and this can impact us. So I want to break this down even further because there are kind of three kinds of traumatic stress that we talk about. Some are better known than others. So primary traumatic stress, this is the one that we all think about usually. This is a trauma that directly is experienced by you or witnessed by you in vivo, meaning like you are in, on site when it happens. And if you go back to one of the first few episodes of the Building Resilience podcast, Defining Adversity, we talked a little bit about what trauma actually was. And by definition, trauma is the response to a deeply distressing or disturbing event that overwhelms an individual's ability to cope, causing feelings of helplessness, diminishes their sense and their ability to feel the full range of emotions and experiences. So trauma has more to do with the response, the impact, and the reaction than it does to the cause or the event. Now, Francine Shapiro, who also created a very well-researched and widely used trauma therapy protocol called EMDR, so you might have heard of EMDR, and that stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And she talked about these events, or we can call them these activators, and she placed them in two different categories, which we also talked about back on that episode. So I believe it was episode two on defining adversity. So we talked about big T trauma and little t trauma. Now some people don't like the terms big T and little T trauma and we talked about that back on episode 2. And then other people like Alex Howard who is another mentor has suggested the labels of overt and covert trauma. So big T trauma or overt trauma, it's kind of the super obvious ones. This is where our experiences actually will meet the criterion for a label of post-traumatic stress disorder diagnosis. And these are experiences such as like physical and sexual assault or natural disasters, anything that there was a threat to physical safety. And the stats really are that about 90% of Americans will encounter one of these events sometime in their life. However, only about 9% of these individuals will actually develop full-blown PTSD from the encounter. And that's why it's really important to distinguish that trauma is the response that we have because not all people have the same reaction to the same event. Although we do put these events, we sometimes classify them as big T or overt trauma because they seem very obvious that the events are traumatizing, But people may not experience PTSD from them. Now, little t trauma can also be referred to as covert trauma. And this is, it's more subtle. So these experiences are often more cumulative and they're chronic. And they could include like non-life-threatening disagreements or certain criticisms. And even things like divorce or infidelity can be placed under little t trauma. And they could include things like where you experience not getting certain needs met, or maybe being criticized a lot. Now they don't necessarily fit under a diagnosis of PTSD, but the symptoms will vary from anxiety to depression, to poor coping mechanisms, and even suicidal ideation. So the impact of these experiences, even though we may be labeling them as little t trauma, like there's some implication, like there's some little effect, these experiences can really impact somebody's life. So we have these two categories, and then the lines can get totally blurred between them. Sometimes something classified as a little t trauma, as I said, can have a significant impact on somebody. And so that's why we don't really want to be throwing these labels around and assuming we know what the impact is on the person. Rather, we need to be looking at individual symptoms And more importantly, what happened to the person who experienced the event, whether it was overt or covert. Because trauma is really about the reaction, the response, and what it does to somebody. So we don't have to focus so much on the event. We want to focus on the experience that the person has. All right, so that was primary traumatic stress, and that is where you are directly involved. Now, the next category is secondary traumatic stress, and this is where you witness a trauma that somebody else is experiencing. Now, it can either be you're witnessing something terrible happening in the world to somebody else, or you can witness it through the media or through the news, or You could witness it through hearing their story or reading reports or reviews or seeing photos. And this one we are going to dive a little bit deeper into just later on in the episode. Now, the third category is what we call environmental trauma. And this type of trauma occurs when you are in the environment of somebody who is suffering. It's different than secondary traumatic stress because you don't necessarily have to personally witness the trauma. Rather, you're simply in the same vicinity with somebody else who has been traumatized. And because of their traumatization, they are in a very activated state. So, for example, children can often pick up on what's happening to their caregivers. So, if a child is in the presence of an anxious or angry caregiver, basically somebody who is chronically activated in their stress response or up into that hyper-aroused state that we talked about last week in that window of tolerance zone of resilience, they, if they are in that presence, they can be experiencing environmental trauma. They may become hyper-vigilant, and this can actually impact their ability to attach to, say, their parents or other people around them. So those are three categories in general that you can experience the trauma directly yourself, you can be a witness to the trauma, or you can just be in the vicinity of somebody who has experienced trauma. Now, I want to talk a little bit about why this is so relevant to helping professionals and caregivers. It is possible for many helping professionals to have experienced their own primary trauma. So in fact, there are some statistics to suggest that over half of helping professionals have a trauma history of their own, and often this leads to a reason why they chose this field of work. But that in of itself is not problematic, but that is why it's so important if you are a helping professional that you get the support that you need to deal with your history so that it doesn't interfere with the work that you do. So it's possible you might have experienced an overt or a big T trauma also in your career. Perhaps you were threatened physically, or perhaps you were attacked by somebody, a patient, or experienced an accident at work, or perhaps you've developed traumatic stress as a result, or some symptoms of traumatic stress as a result of these experiences. So, for example, firefighters and search and rescue and first responders, they may be more exposed more frequently to trauma directly that happens to them while they're working. So for sure, there are helping professionals or caregivers that have to deal with primary traumatic stress. Many helping professionals, if not all of them, will have experienced lots of little t traumas or covert traumas throughout their career. But the biggest issue really is their exposure to that secondary traumatic stress. Now, They can be witnessing the trauma directly by watching the news or looking at graphic pictures on social media or by listening to or engaging with people telling their stories of trauma. And this is a very common one. And this is where I personally found myself being exposed to other people's trauma. I remember very early on in my career when I was working at Mass General Hospital, I was doing my internship there. I was witness to some traumas and I realized it was having an impact on me, but I didn't really understand what was happening. I didn't know the concept of secondary trauma or secondary traumatic stress. We can use both terms. And I remember though, making a decision, I would never work with certain populations based on what I had witnessed. And even at that time, I requested being transferred to just a different area of the hospital because I was aware of the symptoms, I just didn't know what they meant. Then I also remember my first job working was at a rehab hospital in downtown Toronto. And over lunch, myself and some of our colleagues, we would swap stories as a way of coping with the traumas that we were exposed to. Now, again, I certainly at that time did not realize that I was witnessing trauma and that it was having an impact on me. Now, luckily, one of the ways to deal with secondary trauma is to find a really good support network. But I know that the colleagues that I was sharing with, I don't think we necessarily understood the best way that we could support each other. We just kind of shared all the details that we found overwhelming. But it was a great outlet. And one of the people that I met within you know, my first couple of weeks of working, she is, has been one of my best friends now for almost 25 years. But having that support was so important. But I also remember many nights going home and feeling on edge, just being moved to tears with my caseload and what I was witnessing. And no one had ever shared with me that this would be a side effect of my work. And this is one of the reasons why I want to do this podcast and air these episodes and talk to other helping professionals and even students who are going into becoming helping professionals and caregivers. I don't want to forget about caregivers. They often have no education whatsoever. So I just want them understanding that, yeah, there is an impact when you are doing this type of work, whether it is paid or volunteer, whether you're doing it for a stranger or doing it for a loved one. And I know moving forward years later, when I went into private practice and I've been working exclusively in the area of traumatic brain injury again, I was not aware of what secondary traumatic stress was. I didn't realize that like all these files that I review, all these reports, and then I reword them and then I re-quote them and the stories that I hear from people and people share with me and often they wanna share their photos and the pain and the suffering that they experience that they would be sharing with me that these things would be impacting me on a personal level because I didn't even realize that secondary traumatic stress actually existed. So again, I do want to offer to you secondary traumatic stress is not just reserved for helping professionals or even just caregivers. Now I'm talking about these populations because their exposure is much greater, but even the other day I was coaching a client and she was sharing with me how distraught she was over certain events that she had seen on the news. And she was sharing with me how they had impacted her and describing some of her symptoms and not being able to sleep. And she was experiencing secondary traumatic stress. So I want this to be like a yellow light warning for you. Be careful what you are exposing yourself to and be careful because it can impact you. Things like watching the news over and over, the same disturbing events can take a toll on you. Now, in his book, on professional resilience, Dr. Eric Gentry, he uses a great analogy to highlight the difference between primary and secondary traumatic stress. So just to make it a little bit more clear, let's look at this analogy. He asks, what happens when you try to put a frog in a pot of hot water? Now, I'm not sure if this is actually true or not, but it is a great metaphor. So what happens is the frog will jump out. Now, what happens when you put a frog in a pot of cold water and then you put that pot in the stove and you turn the heat up? Well, you get frog soup, and he talks about how the development of secondary traumatic stress is basically the same process of that second frog day to day. You may not be aware of the negative effects on you, and you may not be aware of how much you can tolerate and what your tolerance threshold is Now, most people become aware when they surpass their threshold and they reach a breaking point. This is where they're experiencing like, really strong symptoms in their professional and personal life. Now, what determines your threshold is something else that you're going to want to consider. However, I think I'm going to stop here. I know that this can be a little bit heavy and dense, so it's best to take it in more bite-sized chunks. Next week... We are going to talk all about evaluating your own risk factors. So you will definitely want to tune in if caregiving is in your realm, whether it you be a professional or somebody personally. At any point, we may become very active caregivers, and so I'll be talking about risk factors and what you can do to help with this type of traumatic stress. So stay tuned, and I hope you have a great week. See you next time. Thank you for listening to the Building Resilience Podcast. If you're interested in learning a little bit more about managing stress, building resilience, and leading a more purposeful life, then make sure we're connected on Instagram and Facebook at Leah Davidson Life Coaching. You can also subscribe to my weekly newsletter at www.leahdavidsonlifecoaching.com forward slash newsletter. Looking forward to connecting.